Welcome to episode 10 of Fistful of Chords and part two of my interview with Mike Stock, one third of Stock Aiken and Waterman and writer of 54 UK top 10 hits, including seven number ones. In part one, Mike spoke about the huge success he enjoyed in the 1980s and early 90s, selling 40 million records. In part two, he reflects on forces within the record industry that set out to end that success. We start where we left off. A lot of people would have concluded that we couldn't keep it up uh, for very much longer. We, we, we were on the chart uh, in some position or other for three and a half years, something like that, without a break. I would have carried on. I mean, it sounds a bit odd now. I didn't change. I've always written songs and I would always continue to write songs. The industry changed. They shut the door on us, which led to the uh, departure of Matt, first of all, and Kylie was moving on, we thought. And part of what was going on, because people were losing faith because the door was being shut. Um, they changed the way the charts were compiled. What used to be... It never was honest, but it used to be a data collecting by someone like Mori or BRMB or one of the uh, one of the polling agencies, you know. So you mentioned that that Matt departed at this stage. Matt said to me, "There's no point anymore. Uh, we can't have a hit. The system has changed. The world has, uh, you know, uh, and you know, because I didn't, I didn't." We didn't change really. It's just that um, we were upgrading everything we did all the time, and you know you can see development, musical development, both with artists and with songs and the styles of music. But you know, without going to too much of the detail, you know the BPI sued me, and I sued them in ninety three, ninety four. You know that because the, you'd think it was you'd think thought we were drugs dealers or. <laughs> or something. No, really, because if you read the press, the music press, you'd have thought we were evil. So, you, what did what did you feel about all that? For the the criticism from sort of more purist. Well, I'm over it, totally over it. I'm not bitter and twisted. <laughs> but at the time, um, I, I decided not to read most of it, um, and and we caught them out. We caught them at it. There was a particular magazine called Black Echoes. For some reason, they wanted to um, they wanted to review a Banana Rama record. So how is Black Echoes going to give it a good review? You know, you know that where they're just picking out saying, "This is crap pop. It's awful." Blah, 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 whatever they want to say. So we thought we'd make a record, which we did called Roadblock, which I made it sound like a rare groove seventies thing, and we put the thing out with no name attached. And Black Echoes reviewed it. So this is the best goddamn dance record of 1987, is what they said. That's, I can remember their quote until we told them it was us. <laughs> and, you know, because that was what was going on. We were being singled out. Don't, you know, sound a bit like Donald Trump. Like everyone's against us, the mainstream media. But it's true because there's a lot of money involved. And a lot of people in the major industry, the big labels, who employed tens of thousands of people. And there was five of us, and we were making, we were taking a third of the charts. You know, that's, we had that market share. And so their American bosses 
you know, the big money, the big corporate media giants who own the record labels, were saying to their managing directors in London, what the heck are you doing letting these five guys out of a shed in South London take our market share? I'd misunderstood how deep their power and protectionism went, you know, and they were pretty... Uh, they were pretty determined to stop me. And I went through hell. I had everything happen to me. I had absolutely everything. All my records pulled out of the chart, claimed I was cheating. I had, um, I had <laughs> coincided with the London Underground, tunnelled underneath my building <laughs> and damaged my studio. At the same time as Matt Aiken and I are trying to get our copyrights recognised as being our third ownership, third and third and third with Waterman, but Waterman had sold them at that point to Warners and suddenly we're fighting Warners. And it's not just Warners, it's Time Warner, Time AOL Warner, which is now one of the, you know, they're probably whatever global, whatever they're called, global confederate <laughs> elite, New World Order, Company Limited, whatever they're called. Um, you know, that's who suddenly I find myself suing <laughs> to get my recordings back. So anyway, that's what that's what happened. We didn't stop. The industry changed. And how did that? You mean it was quite a messy um, end to the relationship with Pete Waterman? Well, I walked out on him in '93 and, and went round the corner and built a new studio immediately. So you walked out on him. I walked out on the setup we had there because in that last year, I'd written and recorded just as many songs as I'd done in our big years, in 89, for example, I'd written 70 songs and recorded them. But I had only two releases in that year and none of them was on PWL Records. It was on an outside label, London Records. Uh, so it was I like doing all the work. Matt had gone and my records were being ignored, put on the shelf and hidden. And there have been a lot of artists got caught in that crossfire as well. Um, and so I said to Pete, there's no point in doing this. I had a right set to with Pete. He'd, you know, was selling his, selling the family silver off to Warners and stuff like that. So it, you know, and he was taking a salary. I only ever got paid if my record was a hit and someone coughs up the royalty. Um, I didn't get a salary. I didn't want a salary. But Pete was, and so he was not really therefore much interested in putting out the records anymore. Uh, so that's what that's why we fell apart. And I, I said, well, I'm going off around the corner. I went off and started my own record label studio. And the first stuff we did was very successful. Yeah, you and had that, the um, Unchained Melody, was it? With I did. I, well, the first record, we had a big... We were number two in America and top five over here with uh, Nicky French, Total Eclipse of the Heart, which did very, very well. And then at the same time, we were doing Robson and Drome for Simon Cowell. And the next record I put out, the follow-up to... Um, Nicky French, was pulled from the charts or put in the lower reaches of the charts because they claimed I'd broken the rules on how many formats to have and that my barcode wasn't working when it was going through the tills. And my, and my barcode was working because I had a barcode reader and it wasn't a trick I was going to fall for. I've been through all those tricks before. Um, but then they said, we'd had an extra format out and, you and we didn't have an extra format out. You could, you'd know if you'd got an extra piece of vinyl out there or another CD because you've got to make them and pay for them. Uh, so that was just their excuse to pull the record. Next one. So that they put us in at number 41. 
following up a top five record, you know. Number 41 is just outside the top 40. Radio can ignore you. The shops won't restock you, so you kill your record. I mean, that's just what they do and how they control it. But the very next record on my own label, they didn't even bother with the nicety of putting it at 41. They just said, yeah, it was going in the top 10 somewhere. We pulled it out of the chart altogether. It's not in the top 200. It's nowhere. <laughs> uh, because you were cheating. You, uh, uh, you sent out a team of people to buy them, to walk around record shops and buy them. The, the stupid thing was, all I'd done was I'd hired the same promotion team that worked the BMG records. <laughs> and, if, and they're a team that go out on the road and put posters up and do all that sort of stuff. And that was... so. But, you know, that's when I realised you can't fight them. So how did you get fight, past that then? I didn't for a number of years because, of course, that... But So then, I, the record I'm talking about there is, was a Tatiana record, Santa Maria. After that, uh, with the tunnelling of the underground... I was about to work through Simon Cowell with various people, uh, big-named artists, including um, Barbara Streisand, Dinah Ross, uh, a few film stars as well for some strange reason, Anto Antonio Banderas, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> because Simon's view was, Mike, I'm never going to put a record out with you anyway, I promise you, unless it's number one, so we're going to tie in with Hollywood. Because we tied in with television with Robson Drone, we're now going to tie in with film stars and whatever. And they've got their own platform and their own fan base, so you can... Yeah, that's the way of doing it. And then he said, I want you to produce a band called West End. Uh, they changed their name to Westlife. They were originally called West End. Had to change the name. And I had a contract with BMG, 50-50 joint venture to do Westlife. But then the tunnelling got so bad, it was embarrassing. So I said to Simon, Simon... Can we put this Westlife project on hold just for six months while I sort out the London Underground? And, of course, you, the pop business waits for nobody. And so he went off and made the records with other people. And, of course, they had whatever, 15 number ones or whatever it was. Um, that's something I lost as a result of the Underground. And so I wasn't making records then. Uh, the only thing I could do was take on unknown acts who wouldn't know a good studio from a bad... So when the train rattled by and the glasses moved... <laughs> You wouldn't, it wouldn't be too embarrassing. <laughs> I couldn't say that to Barbara Streisand, you know. I'll oh, just, just ignore the tube trains, just ignore the car outside. Uh, so the old I took on was a band called Scooch. Uh, we got a deal for with EMI for them, had a couple of hits around the millennium. And then I sold the building. I sold it off. I, uh, but I'd spent, the, I spent from about 1986 to 2000 trying to sell the building i asked the london underground london transport buy it off me take it off me you've damaged it they admitted they damaged it but i couldn't get consequential loss out of it so i'm doing nothing in the studio in the end i sell the building i get a good price and somebody's going to develop or they've developed it and i move out of there and get out of it and then I work itinerantly, as it were. Then I thought, what shall I do now? I'll do some stuff for kids. I'll do the Go 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 show, a live show. They can't mess with that. I'll take it around the country, try and get it on television. I'm not aiming for the charts. I'm just putting songs for kids to enjoy. So we did that for a few years. And then someone said, why don't you do the fizz? And, and well, I did Shane, Shane Ward first, who an X Factor winner put an album out with him did okay in the charts all that but i'm really not looking for the charts anymore and i don't know if anybody really is it doesn't mean a lot it's streams streams and downloads and you can't make money out of it i was going um, to ask you about that in terms of i mean the, the, how much the record uh, industry took its 
eye off the ball you know when Napster came along and suddenly everyone's streaming music could they have prevented what happened which is the fact that no one feels they need to pay for music anymore yeah I I, I told them that in 1995 I set up a company called Pop Music Direct with a phone number where you ring it and you get the phone you get the music delivered to you or down the phone um, BMG stopped me doing it because they said it would conflict with our label called Music Direct. I said, but mine's called Pop Music Direct. Anyway, they stopped me. I had all the logos and everything done. And I went to see John Preston at, the B, at uh, BMG and I said, look, John, you do realise the internet's coming, don't you? You do realise. And he said, yes, Mike, everyone tells me that, but nobody can tell me when. And I said, John, that's a bit like when I went home and the wife says to me after 20 minutes, what do you think of my new haircut? You're already too late. It's all happening underneath your feet, John. And, and it was. It was going off. And um, they made a mistake. They sued the people who were running Napster. Um, and suddenly they're suing, suing 16-year-old boys for downloading something in their bedroom. It's just ridiculous. And then, then you get LimeWire and all of a sudden that's... <laughs> they still haven't got it right. Still haven't got it right, and they devalue music. Every time you sell something for 40p or give it away free with cornflakes, you know. I've noticed that you're re-releasing your autobiography in audio format, The Hit Factory. What other things are likely to be in there? What kind of stories are you going to have in, in the audiobook? Uh, it'll be a whole range of things, like the, what, uh, the truth about what what record sales were and what they really mean. I did I did a thing, I was asked to take part in the Cook Report. I don't know if you remember. Oh, Roger yes, Cook. I do, with Roger Cook, yeah. Well, Roger Cook and his team approached me and I said, look, I don't really want to go with you on this on the basis that you're going to doorstep people that I've worked with. I don't want to, I'm not shopping any particular individual. And in the end, they, they picked a young pl a, a plugger such a small cog just to expose him but what I said I'd do was I'd give them a record they wanted a record to hype into the chart and so I gave them a recording um, but there wasn't actually a record there was no actual thing you could buy but what used to happen back then in the sort of mid 90s was uh, shops would chalk up sales to non-existent copies you know <laughs> At this point in our interview, Mike revealed some fascinating tales of underhand record industry behaviour, which will appear in his updated audio autobiography later this year. Among his many ongoing projects is Mike's new website, with a dedicated page for every song he's written, more than a thousand in total. Mike.stopmusic.com will take you there. Yeah, we've been trying to sort of organise that, and lockdown has helped a little bit. To you know, like helped help me get my golf handicap down, and it's helped it's helped uh, my team get uh, the website up, up and running. Yeah, so it's 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 um, it's never been all in one place like that. It's been difficult. It's all all knocking about otherwise, you know. So. Any other unreleased recordings on on there? There are a few things on there. Yeah. Um, uh, so you can you can go to if you sign up and become a member, all you could put put is in your email address and all that. Um, then you you have access to songs that haven't been released. 
some songs that I did as demos uh, uh, of famous songs. Um, uh, that's on there, which is a bit embarrassing. I never expect they'd be available to hear, but um, it, it shows you part of the process. You know, if anybody's interested. Um, so that there's that there's all sorts all the videos are on there some videos that, that haven't been released um songs and more to go on and more as we're doing it uh, i mentioned one to james this morning we haven't got up there yet and a few others so it's it's building all the time and you also mentioned that you're working with the fizz formerly bucks fizz i mean you had quite a decent success with an album in the last couple of years didn't you well we we, we, did, we did the first album three years ago um I'm now on to the uh, fourth one. Uh, we did uh, the F to Z of pop in 2017, and that uh, gave us a single called Dancing in the Rain, um, which we did pretty well at. But see, we did get, we got in the charts with it, but there's no point in mentioning it because nobody knows. <laughs> it's not like uh, prestigious anymore. Um, it's the one thing I would change if the industry really wants to get back to meaningfulness everybody needs to know that there's just one chart there's not just a download chart a streaming chart a, you know a CD chart and a chart for bird lovers and all that you know there's just one chart we can all get behind and then everybody would know and you can promote that um, so but that, that, that as far as I'm concerned we were successful in bringing the fizz back to uh, partly to a new generation and to please the old generation and then we did um, a Christmas album with them just Christmas favourites and then a new album which released earlier this year Smoke and Mirrors um, which has got a few singles on it which I'm quite happy with their success rate um, and then we're just about to start uh, the fourth one which is the 40th anniversary of Eurovision. Yeah, that's to co coincide with that. So we'll release that early next year. Um, 40 years since winning Eurovision, but an awful lot of life gone by that it's nice to look at, remember and celebrate. I mean, you know, Mike Nolan nearly died. They had a coach crash, you know, when the, at the peak of their fame and success, which kind of halted their career dramatically because they, they could have... I, I really like them as pop pop band. They're iconographic now. They're kind of a heritage band. But both Cheryl and Mike, Mike went, went through the windscreen of this horrendous crash. And then more recently, uh, Jay Aston has had mouth cancer and she's had part of her leg removed to repair what they took away of her tongue for a singer to have you know your mouth infected that way and have the tongue removed it's a, it's a you know she, she's okay now she can actually manage to sing and pronounce the words but it was touch and go and one of the songs off smoke and mirrors kind of deals with that in a way that we hadn't planned but I'd, i wrote that 20 odd years ago and I, but it just seems so apposite and she's doing fine now incidentally that's but, good so there's a span of 40 years of life and on the road and they haven't stopped gigging you know they don't get they get no support from the majors the, the broadcasters when they get no support and it's typical of the way the industry is you know chuck them aside 
Check them aside. But I think people have realised how much we need music and theatre and shows and live events through this lockdown. And people are, government's talking about sort of subsidising. But it's a new world. There's a global reset going on. I don't know whether we'll ever get back to it. I was, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, for a start, there's going to be, I think, a stock aching of autumn and musical. I mean, is that ever going to happen within the current situation? Well, I think we might have to rethink how that happens now. Um, which, which doesn't bother me, but, you know, to quote the song, don't it always seem to go, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You know, suddenly you can't go to live football matches. Suddenly, And I don't know whether it'll ever come back. I mean, I can't see why people want to go and spend four hours in the traffic, queuing up to see a match, coming home and getting home at midnight, seeing your team lose 1-0 in November. You know, when you can sit at home with your massive TV screen, you know, which is what people are doing now. So it's going to be difficult for everybody to get back into the habit of all of that, um, but I think from our musical point of view, fortunately we weren't at the point of putting it on stage and rehearsing it, we're still haggling around over the script, but it's it's what we do have the production house and the situation is in hand, uh, we're just waiting to see what happens next. I suppose pay-per-view somewhere on TV, you know, is the way forward, I don't know. Um, so where would you say that the, the, what does the future hold for you finally um, I'm going to finish painting my shed in a minute so I'm only really thinking of the next two hours um, <laughs> um, I tend to not look too far ahead I mean I know I've got an album to do with the Fizz so I'm my mind is already working songs out in my head you know and then and I also know um, we've got a musical to get organised one way or the other and and then there'll be... I've, listen, I, I do have a, uh, a thought about some of our 80s artists. There's been quite a good living for them in the 80s revival, you know, those sorts of things, the uh, memory lane type shows. It's, and They're still earning a living. That period of 80s music won't go away. But they haven't been able to earn any money this last four or five months and the summer's getting over with now and I don't know what's going to happen. I think I'd like to set up something for them I mean our former artists um, you know some form of live performances on TV or on online or, or pre-recorded or some, some such arrangement where people can pay for them they've got to earn a living somehow uh, we could set it up technically or, or we could do it in conjunction with a broadcaster but it's something that should be done because those concerts were the lifeblood and people who go in pantomime every year you know that's, that, that's what they require Otherwise, they don't get any money. See, being an itinerant musician, actor, well, it's a different world. You know, when you've got a regular job and a salary coming in, you, you know, I've done it all my life. No one's ever given me a salary. So you're always looking to see where your next meal's coming from, really. Thanks again to Mike for taking part in Fistful of Chords. He really has enjoyed an extraordinary career. For even more revelatory stories, watch out for the publication of his audio autobiography, The Hit Factory, this autumn. It'll be sure to ruffle feathers. Thanks also to James Stock for engineering, Tim Bricheno for his music, and Mark Taplin for his podcast artwork. Goodbye. <laughs>